Welcome to episode 39 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Taylor Britton, student at University of Queensland Ochsner Clinical School and member of the RSA Education Committee, speaks with Dr. Peter W., who has been a presenter at multiple AAEM scientific assemblies. Today, Mr. Britton and Dr. W. discuss mechanical ventilation choices in the emergency department that change outcomes. My name is Taylor Britton, a medical student recording for AAM RSA. This is Dr. Peter W. I'm a professor of clinical medicine for LSU in New Orleans, as well as professor of clinical surgery for Tulane in New Orleans. I'm the chief medical officer of University Medical Center. My training is both in pulmonary critical care as well as emergency medicine. I've attended in both the ICU and the emergency department for over 25 years. We're lucky to have him here. We're going to talk about his lecture called Don't Make Me Blue, Mechanical Ventilation Choices in the Emergency Department that Change Outcomes. So first question, what are um, some possible indications for moving directly to intubation and invasive mechanical ventilation? Well, there's been a lot written recently, particularly pushed out from the American Heart Association in regards to do we need to invasively manage patients' airways, even if they have the indications. And the solid indications have always been airway protection, respiratory failure, or expected clinical course. The most recent data shows, though, that there's really perhaps increased harm if we rush right into intubation. However, in our practices where there are many hands, that hasn't really been studied. And by mean many hands, if someone's handling the resuscitation end from a global picture, if someone's handling the rhythm assessment from a global picture, and if someone's handling the airway and IV access, then it makes sense. If there's only one skilled provider, it makes zero sense to go right into intubation, even if there's abject reason to, such as apnea. So I think another interesting one kind of question I had was there was a study done and maybe your opinion on is uh, the lack of gag reflex enough indication to go to intubation. So I have no shortage of opinions on gag reflex, right? So 25% of the lay public does not manifest the gag reflex, right? Hmm. You know, take that as you will. But the important understanding is probably the assessment of a gag reflex in the emergency department for the purposes of intubating a patient is fraught with peril. What do we mean by that? Well, actually, sticking something in the back of somebody's throat to assess whether they have a gag reflex or not is really a bad idea because if, in fact, the patient vomits and can't protect their airway, we have other issues and other challenges. So when we start talking about who can handle their secretions, That's really the question we want to ask ourselves. And so asking the patient to cough, asking the patient to phonate, observing the patient swallow, that gives you information that's valuable. That gives you information to decide whether or not the patient can protect their airway or not. So again, clear phonation is helpful. Observing a patient swallow. So if I ask you right now to cough, go ahead and cough. (coughs) 
Okay. What, what did you do immediately after you coughed? Swallow. You swallowed. Right. And so that's a better assessment of the airway and whether or not you can handle secretions. It gives you far more information than the dangers and the risks associated with assessment of a gag. Excellent points. I like that. And moving on to the next question. Is there any literature that you know of on you know, outcomes of non-invasive versus invasive in the acute respiratory failure? So there's a whole host of <laughs> references. And again, any literature search can point to that. The difficulty is, is how we describe them. So if we say respiratory failure as our group, mm-hmm. that's really a heterogeneous group, right? Mm-hmm. So I might have respiratory failure due to COPD. I might have it due to pneumonia. I might have it due to neuromuscular disease. I might have it due to trauma. I might have it due to cancer, multilobar pneumonia. So there's a host of different disease processes that can be at foot. So if, if you look at them globally, can you prevent invasive mechanical ventilation and intubation with non-invasive? You can. Does that provide fewer ICU days? It does. Does that provide fewer hospital days? It does. It's difficult, though, to parse out separate groups, right? Because non-invasive is also used in end-of-life care or palliative medicine, comfort care measures. And then non-invasive isn't just BiPAP, but it also is now humidified high-flow nasal cannula. And so all of those have their applications and uh, I think well worth use depending on what the patient wants, what the disease process is, and what your goals are. So more of a, maybe not just looking at, in that case, not just looking at it as just respiratory failure, but it kind of, you know, each, like you said, each case separately. And You know, respiratory failure is just a real difficult subject. And again, mm. it's a heterogeneous group. And it's, you know, there's, you know, hypoxic respiratory failure. There's hypercapnic respiratory failure. There's a combination of the two. And then, of course, we have different disease processes where we're trying to protect the airway and is that necessary? There's still some data out there that shows um, patients with hepatic encephalopathy have done well with non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, which I never would have applied prior to reading the studies and looking at them. Now moving on to more of like the ventilation choices that you talk about. So you kind of talk about modes. I know in your, in your lecture, we talk about the you know, AC versus MV. Any studies on particular indications for that? Yeah, let's talk about that for just a second, because I think your listeners should know that there's really no studies that identify a mode and improved outcome. There is evidence that shows that high-frequency jet ventilation kills more people, and that can be actually dangerous. But looking at inverse ratio ventilation, volume cycled versus pressure cycled, all of those, there's really been no mode that correlates with improved outcomes. There have been ventilatory strategies that have been recommended. There have been ventilatory strategies that have shown improved outcomes, but not really a mode. Mm-hmm. And I think kind of in your lecture, you really favored the kind of assist control, the AC mode in general. So in my presentation, what I tried to emphasize was if you're intubating somebody for respiratory failure, that the consideration for assist control, which is a volume-cycled mode, should be made because the work of breathing on assist control is significantly less than the work of breathing on SIMV or SIMV with pressure support or pressure support when the patient breathes over the set rate. 
So the reality is if the rate is set at 20 and you're on assist control and I'm on SIMV and you and I aren't breathing over the rate of 20, then the work of breathing is negligible. It's there, but it's small. The minute we begin breathing over the set rates, if you're on assist control, you do less work of breathing than I would do if I were on SIMV. Now, why is that important? Well, if you intubated me because I could no longer handle the work of breathing, I had respiratory fatigue, you certainly wouldn't, right off the bat, give me a mode where I'm going to be made to do work. It's just counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. Kind of touching more on the assist control. I kind of, there's different cycles for that as well. I guess the pressure cycle versus volume cycle. Do you have any kind of preference Again, for that? Again, I have a preference for volume cycled because breath stacking is more common in those patients placed on pressure cycled ventilation. And then, so I think kind of touching on, uh, I guess, the doc- Dr. Weingart's two strategies for ventilation, it seems like you're a little, you know, I don't know how much you agree or, how you, or if you want to touch on that on much, but um, do you think his recommendations were sufficient or, you know, I guess valid? You know, Scott's very clever, and he was one of the first to put this together for emergency medicine physicians. So I think on the main, it's a fair representation of what should happen with one caveat, and that is is that low tidal volume ventilation should be applied across the board. Mm-hmm. And his definition of low tidal volume ventilation and my definition are a bit disparate. So he gives a range of six to eight cc's per kilogram, and I would say that that would be six, mm-hmm. period. And then, so that's kind of the long protective strategy, as you mentioned, correct? It is. Yeah. So it's also called low tidal volume ventilation or lung protective ventilation, um, which really looks at just six cc's per kilogram, regardless of the pulmonary process. So your lungs could be pristine, have no evidence of disease, and you would still benefit from low tidal volume ventilation. And then, so you kind of, you said, generally start with that across the board, and then your lecture, you kind of, you know, adjust based on the disease process potentially going on, asthma or a COPD patient or an obese patient. But one of the things that I would just kind of bring to the mindset of the listener is that if you're going to reach for low tidal volume ventilation, the respiratory rate's going to have to be higher. And that just has to do with minute ventilation. And standard minute ventilations for patients run between, for a 70-kilogram individual, between 8 and 10 liters per minute. So in order to get there, you're going to have to increase your respiratory rate. So this traditional, you know, 10 to 12 respiratory rate would be fine if we were using 8 to 9 cc's per kilo, but at 6 cc's per kilo, you're going to have to jump that up to 20 to 24 mm-hmm. breaths per minute. Yeah, and I think that was the one, when first watching your lecture, that did surprise me. I didn't, when you said, you know, hey, guess what you think, and I was definitely way off, but it, now that when you talk about it, it makes a lot more sense. But again, it is challenging a practice habit, because mm-hmm. our practice habit is not to write the number 2-0 or 2-4, in that order set. It yeah. just is not. <laughs> yep. And then I don't know if you're familiar with some of the other, because some people kind of had arguments with Dr. Weingart's practice as well. So I think some were saying maybe it's too simplified. So I don't, think, I don't think mechanical ventilation is rocket science. And I think it's easy to criticize anybody who is a pioneer or is the first one to put it in writing. I don't think that any of the things that Scott has written are dangerous 
or bad medicine. And I think when we have criticisms for mechanical ventilation, it typically isn't evidence-based. More, like you said, kind of a mindset and old practice. Practice yeah, habit. Practice habit, correct. Right. Because I know you were, you were a proponent of the titrating based on plateau pressure. I'm in favor of not having elevated plateau sure, pressures. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, I think McIntyre predates both Scott and myself mm-hmm. by a good bit. Mm-hmm. And I know Ardzenet trial is still kind of, it seems like maybe not, I don't know if you want to say the gold standard or like the best study that's been done up to date. Do you know if there's any been well, any newer studies? So Ardzenet has been validated over and over again. That's over 15 years of data. The sad part is the penetrance into our practice is just at 70%. And so that's pretty sad um, when you say this is substantial mortality benefit and yet we only have 70% penetrance, which is one of the reasons why I think uh, the presentation is an important presentation. Because if you start with ARDSnet and then talk about the other measures, you know, which include oxygenation goals, which include goals for patients with elevated BMI or permissive hypercapnia, it makes it that much more challenging for us, I think. Yeah. And I think maybe just some more, I have like, you know, two more questions. One's a little bit more specific, kind of some, something I was reading, but saying that SIMV may be a bit better for something severe metabolic acidosis. So this is a great question, and this came after my lecture as well. And so the statement is, we should be cautious in those patients who have spontaneous respiratory drive and are suffering from profound metabolic acidosis. Classically, these are patients with aspirin toxicity, as well as renal failure, as well as DKA, who have tachypnea and Kuzmal breathing. So their respiratory drive is jacked up. It's high. And the depth of their respirations are equally high. Matching that with mechanical ventilation is next to impossible. So if I chose low tidal volume ventilation in those patients and I chose assist control, that'd be a poor choice. We can create all sorts of scenarios like that to play stump the chump. And so that's why not all settings are appropriate for all populations. Sure. So in that case, the SIMV may be a bit more appropriate. So SIMV with pressure support Mm -hmm. would probably be more appropriate for worker breathing purposes and make sure the patient can compensate. Not intubating them is even better, right? And then fixing their metabolic acidosis is better still. <laughs> yeah, right. sure. Yeah, fix the underlying cause, obviously. It's so maybe the last question kind of had was just on the breath stacking and auto-peep. I know, I know you did kind of mention the kind of a cool technique in your lecture about compressing the chest, Could that, and that can be kind of applied to breath stacking as well? So it can definitely be applied to breath stacking. So let me give you the scenario. We did a a QA project at Charity Hospital over 20 years ago where we sent a respiratory therapist for in-house codes. And what do you think the respiratory rate was for the initial three minutes? Maybe 24? Yeah, 24. So 60 to 70 breaths per minute. Whoa. Right? Yeah. And so if you disconnected the patient from the bag, what do you think you would hear? Not much, yeah. No, you'd hear air coming out. Oh, okay. Be a lot of trap pressure and a lot of trap volume. Yeah, sure. So whether it's breath stacking due to a machine or if it's breath stacking due to somebody vigorously bagging someone during a code, 
you can do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so laying hands on the thorax and compressing in the setting of dynamic hyperinflation, auto peep, or you know, <laughs> induced peep, right? Mm-hmm. Because trap volume is trap pressure. It's not different. And so squeezing the chest and allowing some of that recoil puts you in a much better position and less injurious to the patient. Yeah, very cool. So it's not just in asthmatic patients, but something that you probably see far more common or in code situations where people are pretty nervous, pretty geeked, and hyperventilating the patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really cool when you were talking about that the other day as well. We really appreciate taking the time today. I know you had a long day. or still have a long day to go, but we appreciate you being here. Happy to participate. Thanks, guys. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.